This evening's talk is about the transformation and relinquishment of afflictive states of mind. And beginning uh, with a quote from I don't know who, an anonymous person. Pleasure, like pain, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. A number of years ago now, I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included uh, teachers from all the various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. And uh, the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests of honor at this gathering, said that often his response to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on uh, to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, of Nibbana, being a complete purity of the heart, the mind, has been described as the mind and heart of an Arahant. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I've practiced with Saida Upandita and with Pawak Saidao, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course the suttas, in the suttas the Buddha also often speaks of this aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom in a very similar way. As our own confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to get some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy, a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you all are, making physical and mental efforts in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat, and in our life outside of retreat, we, we come to know, to really directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find that at least to some degree, 
we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go, at least to some degree, of what's, what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourself, and what's harmful to others. And we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, of heart, are more and more our experience. They're more readily available. They manifest more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and these practices takes deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And these are words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is wholesome, O bhikkhus, or O yogis. One can, ab- one can abandon the wholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus, O yogis. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom and metta and compassion of the Buddha. The heart-mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care, to pay attention rather than judging them and rather than condemning them. And the heart-mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering, rejoices for them. This uh, approach to life, this way of seeing, can be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my practice, there have uh, been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teaching and practice. And when I've been able to really be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings as well as for my own practice has deepened and grown. 
the Venerable Paak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things and not just practice, things, everything with the attitude that you can be successful. That this is what the Buddha taught. Once in a practice interview with him, I went in and I said, this is too hard, just too hard. And Pawak looked at me with this great kindness that emanates from his eyes and kind of a light laughter. And he simply responded and said, no, it isn't. And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are actually filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll specifically explore the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in our practice in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have some skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha was not excluded from this. When he left the palace as a a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion. His search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or some philosophical stance. So these so-called skeletons in the closet the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubt, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains. It's a very long list. More more than that even. From our present life's experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes experience. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open heart and open mind. Some we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice we open to whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away the skeletons in the closet. And very important, it's not about dredging up, it's not about digging up afflictive states of mind. Most all of us need to discover these skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness. Or we continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes, to uncover what 
may have been hidden or maybe that we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and maybe buried away. The skeletons in the closet that in fact we've been hauling around often unconsciously, unwitting, unwittingly, maybe for a very long time. And this is a, a piece from Stephen Mitchell, the poet and translator, his version of the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools. The tools of concentration, mindfulness, investigation, metta, compassion, each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence. Our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire and attachment, sadness, irritation, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again or the habit of trying to get rid of it or to fix it or trying to maybe ignore it or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity that kind of oh it's really nothing sort of attitude we begin to realize that none of these reactive habitual habitual patterns really serve us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing or seeing through, as I like to call it, is opened. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting 
and a non-judgmental knowing that this is how it is. This is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 20 years ago or maybe just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that goes like this. Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. And some words from the Sri Lankan monk Bhante Gunaratana from his book Mindfulness in Plain English. He says, view all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them, condemn yourself, or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem? Great, he says. <laughs> More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And then I add, investigate within the heart of kindness. And so we, we sit quietly and watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are really primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be accepted and be clearly seen. And this takes time. We can't hurry it. We just simply resolve and persevere with great patience, and the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear, and this can be kind of a vicious circle. And so we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourself in through this process of opening to and relinquishing. Relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering. Relinquishing our addictions of mind. 
The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj said, Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad, but don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a a bit of a look now uh, at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is very directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions, the suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Because of that, this. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desire, attachment, etc. And yet, so often, we believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though very solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and also for others. We grasp onto the past and we project into the imaginary possible future, solidifying both in our mind. And yet life just very simply just keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is conditional totally relative, a contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Here in Taos, during the midsummer and early fall season, we have what we call our monsoon season. And in the big open sky of this northern New Mexico area, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, often even double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. There's just the right of moisture in the atmosphere. The angle of light is just right. And of course one has to be 
in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so very quickly. Everything in life, including our ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart, and mind, are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's so very obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get quite stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, as mine, as I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, whatever it may be, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. This present moment, and this present moment, and this present moment, just as it is, right now, and right now, and right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't rooted in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided or ignored. We have a saying in English, ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance, and bliss is bliss. With ignorance, in fact, providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or true understanding 
that's experienced as the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. And this is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Just two of the many hues in the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So I'd like to go on now with exploring a few uh, specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states, beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of our practice, of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance. Maybe such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to. Or maybe feeling like, I can't be with this experience, I'm not sure I want to be with this experience. This unfamiliar new experience or old familiar experience or strong emotional state or pain in the body or maybe even this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe feeling kind of frozen or caught or just simply unable to open to and receive the experience fully and deeply with a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind if we take it up, if we believe it. Like, well, it's, it's his fault. Or it's because she, or it's because they. That blaming critical attitude. The fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment and self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism. Maybe with feelings of unworthiness, of not being good enough, or of just not being enough, not doing it right, not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. Really, all of this is rooted in fear. We may have a habit of getting caught up in identifying with the mind of judgment or doubt or blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others, which actually is often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. 
I think often we're afraid of the fear. Afraid to look directly at it. Especially if maybe we've taken a peek and found that it might not be so easy. Years ago, one of my uh, teachers told me when I came in for a practice interview and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said to me, fear is just fear. (laughs) Well, when I first heard this from him, my inward response, I didn't say it out loud, but was, well, that's really easy for you to say, you know. So pretty obviously some resistance there and uh, irritation in those thoughts. But eventually, it took a while, but eventually I began to see that, yes, fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our mindfulness-based practice and concentration, rooted in a growing kindness, rooted in metta towards ourself. We begin to be able to meet and receive fear, to really come close to it, to look it in the eye, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century Persian poet Hafiz said, Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As our mind, heart gets stronger and our concentration mindfulness and metta muscles, we could say, develop. We can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, it's not me, it's not I. I am not a fearful person. Fear happens Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. It may be a moment of very intense experience. But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's not something solid, not something permanent, and that it's clearly not me or mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again after we've seen it clearly. What we learn is we learn to be steadfast. We learn to stand in the fear. We learn to lose the fear of fear. And we begin to see it clearly. We begin to see through it 
like we see through the hues of a rainbow. A couple of years ago, I read an article in the National Geographic magazine about a woman named Garland, who was 40 years old at the time, uh, in her 40th year. She was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without any oxygen. And in this article, there was um, part of it uh, talked about fear. Her husband, Ralph, was also a mountain climber. He did not make it all the way to the top of K2. She did, and a couple of other people did. But he turned back at one point. And I'd like to share what each of them said about fear. And this is Ralph. Ralph's uh, words. He, Ralph, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. And Garland. Garland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she said she didn't feel afraid. When Gerland finally got to the top of K2, she was a practicing Buddhist. And when she finally got to the top of K2, she took the little Buddha she had been carrying in her pack and placed it on top of K2. The Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been conditioned, how most of us have been patterned. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. They just reappear. And putting a a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities and keeps the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's not about blindly acting out and blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is kind of like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. And as I mentioned just a little bit ago, nor is this practice about purposely dredging up and then miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of Fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and when we're swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience, an intimacy of connection based in kindness, 
with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away and without pulling away from experience or without desiring it to be different. In specifically practicing metta or samatha concentration, these same principles apply, though investigation may not necessarily be as extensive as it can be with vipassana practice. Unless an unwholesome state really blows up into becoming very pervasive and very sticky. So, taking a look now at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. So from this perspective, it actually can be quite seductive. Quite some time ago now, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily with anger. She was very attached and identified with her anger and in fact spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she wasn't a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine people would begin to get close to her and then to feel the sharp needles, so to say, the sharp sting of her anger, and they'd move away from her. She was a very lonely person, and yet so identified in her mind as an angry person and so afraid she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and power, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of her anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really truly practice. And it sometimes takes a lot of mindfulness and metta energy directed towards ourself to open to, be with, and really clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta don't cover over anger, fear, jealousy, irritation. Practice changes our mind and is about making the choice to transform our heart, transform our mind, so that we embody love, we embody wisdom. And it's actually a courageous choice. It actually opens the heart and gives us the strength to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, and to not pretend anything, but rather to stay still, to be here, to be present in relationship with what is. It's a choice to see and experience things just as they are, with a very natural strength that comes through the expanding 
capacity of our heart-mind. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year uh, was for two months, and then for one month the second year. And one student uh, who stayed for the whole two months of practice that first year was a man in his early 40s. He was a very successful uh, big city businessman in Warsaw who had been um, diligently practicing Zen and Karate and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to the two-month Vipassana and Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. He'd grown up in a home environment that was um, with a very uh, ill-tempered, angry father and uncle. Living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear much of the time through his childhood. And with that fear still being present in his adult life. But much more obvious to this man was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habit of thought, words, and actions of that same ill temper. And so he described himself as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he'd begun to see himself much more clearly through his martial arts practices and his interest in Buddhism and meditation. For the full year following the two-month retreat in Przeka, Poland, this man very diligently uh, and mindfully practiced metta with the phrase, may I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this present moment. That's the only phrase that he used. As the year progressed, he saw his habituated ill temper beginning to arise sooner and sooner in its process. And consequently, he was able to let it go more and more often because it was so painful, so uncomfortable. So he would let it go. He returned to Prajeka uh, a year later for the month-long retreat uh, that following year, and he was a much changed and much happier man. It was really wonderful to see. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effect of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, it's narrow, constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. One often feels restless and maybe driven Nothing satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body's tense. 
With anger, the sense of self looms very large, as does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a very sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a line is drawn that isn't to be passed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, and hate develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger isn't solid. It's made up of many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations with all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or sadness or doubt, greed, clinging, expectation, disappointment, it's very helpful to try to let them go just Let the stories drop away. Give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're kind of like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring attention directly into the sensations in the body. Feeling the emotion very directly, in itself, without the story. What are you feeling? Maybe heat, tightness, pressure, heaviness, contraction, some degree of quality of vibration somewhere. Where is it? And very important, How is it changing? How is it changing? Notice the mind. Meaning at this point, what is your relationship to these sensations? Is there resistance? More contraction then. 
Give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Maybe do some walking meditation. You might even walk maybe a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body and into the breath with walking. Or you might open to the natural world outside. The trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Notice the birds, chipmunks, insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world and in the body and also in the breath. In those moments of a connected present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment, moment attention is really amazing beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. Remember the mountain climber Garland's relationship to fear. Again, from the uh, Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who often uh, taught in dialogue with his students. This is one of those dialogues. The student uh, says to him, what is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta responds, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It is the mind bewildered by wrong ideas addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, such as power, control, or pleasure, status, prestige, or recognition, with a clear, non-self, absorbed, concentrated and mindful attention, 
based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc. So now we'll spend just a little bit of time exploring the wanting mind, the states of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our heart-mind is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment, we're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, with greed really being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance, hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented, to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that, in fact, it won't, that in fact it can't. And, of course, there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. So, for instance, it's in part uh, what got you here on retreat. So in light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share uh, a prayer, uh, a personal practice that I was told was of Mother Teresa's that uh, someone sent to me in the mail. And her prayer was, Deliver me, O Jesus. I changed it to Deliver me, O Dhamma. (laughs) Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. She left nothing out, I think. Fairly soon after I uh, received this in the mail, I got a phone call from a friend and I said, I, I have to read this to you. I just got this in the mail. So I read it out loud over the telephone. And my friend's response was, 
oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) True, we do have a lot to do. But every time I read this, I find it so inspiring. Many of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire and also expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to or get something back. Or we spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. Impossible, of course. And maybe even here in retreat. Maybe some particularly wonderful sitting that you had the other day. Or maybe even some great sitting, uh, a particular period of practice you experienced on your last retreat or the retreat before that. It's the contraction the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while. How driven am I by my desire? So, a simple and really quite mundane personal example. Some years ago I was at a retreat center here in New Mexico that has some of the most um, wonderful flower gardens. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and I noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose uh, to where the smell was coming from, to a particular flower and I got down very close to the flower and I really took in the smell. Very present, very aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go do something, something else. But all I wanted to do was stay there and continue experiencing that wonderfully sweet smell. So with that next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and to just go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was completely gone. I was experiencing tightness in the body and a a degree of burning irritation in the heart and in the mind. I got up and I walked away to do what needed to be done next. But there was still a clinging to this sweet smell. Even though at that point it was completely gone from my field of experience. I was attached at that point to the memory of it. Wanting it back. And planning. Planning when I could get back to that garden. Imagining how really nice it would be later when I finally got back there. What just a moment before a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught 
in the grip of my clinging mind. A moment of suffering. And it happens so quickly for us. As we spoke about the other evening, to some degree, to sustain and deepen in and with our practice two of the most essential qualities of heart and mind that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear seeing and knowing are mutually incompatible. As we begin to sense, see, and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. And for many people, I think there's often some confusion, delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. It's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see and know it clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And on through each of the six sense doors this way. And then he went on to say burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred jealousy, fear, burning of the, with the fire of confusion. Some years ago, um, I found a, a recipe that comes from a man named Fred Moramarco. And uh, at the risk of uh, giving you a recipe that you already have and maybe cook up sometimes, I'd like to share this one with you. Some of you have heard this recipe before. It's called a recipe for unhappiness. And the ingredients are this. One cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. A quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. One bunch of actual reality. One pint of idealized worldview. Two teaspoons of perfection and four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And this is what you do with it all. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints, and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then, try to reattach leaves in the exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in a food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add it to what is and an ability to accept what is and blend. 
add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let it stand until tears form. Garnished with minced, garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. And a sort of similar teaching. The same teaching, really, but with a different way of saying it, from the Chinese sage Nan Shin. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness, and investigation rooted in kindness that meets the experiences of the moment and sees them clearly just as they are. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up without getting swept away, without being overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them. We see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. One way, and maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is from the Mahayana Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the red lotus, the the white lotus, the blue lotus, and the red lotus do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult energies. The mud banks of passions. It's not like something's gone wrong. So not to pretend to ourselves or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self 
is pulled out. Strong emotional energies are digested into wisdom. So for just a moment now, looking at a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart-mind reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear or judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to relinquish, to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness, the place of coolness and luminosity in our mind and heart, the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added. Nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. As our practice begins to take deeper root and blossom, we really truly begin to know that this moment is just enough just as it is. And we begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. And closing the talk this evening with a poem uh, by a man named Roger Keyes. And this is a poem called Hokusai Says. And as some of you may know, Hokusai was a Japanese painter. And his most famous painting was um, this huge wave with, with the coming up and over, it almost looked like, like fingers. And down at the bottom in the water underneath the wave was a little boat, is a little boat with people in it. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. 
He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself, as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He said, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit together quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.